Like they said, my name is Zach Taylor. I've been here about eight years. Uh, I walked in July 3rd, 2011, broken, and the Lord saved me that day. And it's exciting for me to be able to sit here today and spread the gospel, talk about the gospel to the body that I love. This is my spiritual Jerusalem, and I am excited to be here with you. We're going to be in Nehemiah 1, and we're going to journey through that together. But first, I need to give you guys some background information so you can understand where I'm coming from. So I have a, a beautiful wife named Erica, and my wife loves podcast. I don't know if we have any podcasters in the room, but like a good millennial, she loves podcasts. And since my job as a police officer takes me away from the home for about 16 nights out of the month, she has a lot of time. And by a lot of time, I mean a lot of time. We have no kids. We just have a dog. And to my knowledge, the dog has never talked back to her. So if you hear of that, please let me know so we can deal with that. Um, but she came to me and said, you got to listen to this podcast. And she does that a lot. And I said, okay, babe. She goes, no, 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 you, you've got to listen. You're going to be excited. And she was super excited more than normal. And what this podcast was about was this church in Nashville, Tennessee, had partnered with 400 other churches, compiled the list of names of everybody who calls Nashville home. They compiled it into a packet that talked on prayer and fasting. They gave it to their church members and say, pray and fast for 30 days. Over these names, there was about 15 names in each packet with an address and a postcard. And they said, you know what? We're going to let God work. We're just going to be actively partaking in the kingdom of God through prayer and see what God does. And amazing stories came out of it. Stories of men who were going home only to end their life that day. And they had decided that was how they're going to spend their last moments on earth. But yet he decided he was going to stop by the mailbox. He doesn't know why, but he stopped by the mailbox, opens up and sees this letter from someone that he doesn't know saying, hey, you are loved, you are valued, you are cared for. And there was a God that believed and loved you so much that he died on this cross for you. And not only did he die, but he rose again and he lives forever and he wants you to be follow him. And this man cha changed everything about his day. His day had been about how it would be his last, but in reality, it became the start of his brand new life in Christ. There were stories, countless stories of how the Lord worked. There were also stories of persecution. People found out that churches were praying for them and they didn't like it. But praise God that when we partake in the kingdom of God, we will see persecution because we see that on a global scale that Christians all over the world are being persecuted for their faith. And we stand along with our master who is persecuted for what he said because he said he is God and he had come. And we stand with him because he was persecuted. And persecution happens when we actively partake in the kingdom of God. So we, me and Erica, both agree Northwest needs to do something like this, about this. We need to awaken Northwest to the power of prayer and fasting and how we can partake in the kingdom of God, not only through missions, OKC or Edmonton or Santa Cruz, but we need to partake in the kingdom of God through prayer. But first, before we 
can do that, we have to understand a few things. We have to, one, understand what prayer is, what fasting is, and we have to understand the gospel and the reality of the gospel. So we're going to define real quickly what prayer is. John Piper says, prayer is intentionally convening a message to God. It is not just sending a message to God, because I don't know if you know this or not, but you are always sending a message to God based on your actions. Whether you're committing idolatry or praise, you're always giving a message. This is an intentional convening of a message to the Lord. Fasting is fasting is actively and purposely abstaining from food or drink or something for a set time. Now, I do intermittent fasting, big word for meaning I basically only eat for eight hours a day, and then 16 hours, 16 hours of the day, I don't eat because I fast. That is not Christian fasting. That's called, I went to my first year of marriage. I work as a police officer. We get Chick-fil-A. I put on a lot of weight, and I needed to lose it. Some of you just heard free Chick-fil-A and wanted to say, how did it sign me up? I don't. So Christian fasting is the act of going without food or drink or something for a set time for the purpose of growing our hunger for the Lord, knowing nothing on this earth is going to satisfy us apart from Jesus. And as we jump into Nehemiah 1, we're going to see how this worked in his life. And if you have a Bible, open it to Nehemiah 1. We're going to read the first three verses. Some of you are wondering what that was. We did that at Falls Creek. It's okay. That means they're awake, and that's great. Um, If you have a hard black back, a hard black Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, page is going to be 398. And if you'd read the word of the Lord with me, Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 3, says, The word of Nehemiah, the son of Halakali, now it happened in the month of Chrislev in the twelfth year, as I was in Suzanne the Cisadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. You can sit real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this word. God, we pray that we will understand the reality of the gospel and what it drives us to do. So let's dig in a little deeper in this piece of scripture. So the Jewish people, God's chosen people, are in exile, meaning they are not in the promised land, yet there's a remnant, meaning a small group of people that is still living there, yet their condition is grave. Now, Nehemiah knew these people, he loved these people, and he loved God's nation. And he understood that without a wall, Jerusalem was in peril. Today in our world and context we live in, we don't have walls. There's not a wall surrounding Oklahoma City. But in those times, a wall was key to the protection of a city. If you know the biblical story of the walls of Jericho, we know what an act of God it was that those walls fell. If you are familiar with History about the walls of Troy. We know those walls didn't fall. Walls are key. And Nehemiah understood 
this reality for his people. We ourselves have to understand the reality we live in in this day and age, in 2019, because if we don't, we will miss what we are here for. So the reality is that we live in a post-Genesis world, meaning that we are not in perfect union with the Lord. We no longer live in the garden. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning we are destitute without hope. There is nothing you can do. There is no checkbox system you can have that will fix this reality. Yet, luckily, we also live in a post-resurrection world of Jesus Christ where this means that through Christ we can have a reunited relationship with him. In Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. If it stopped there, the story of Christ would be incomplete because it says, but, on, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the reality that we live in in a post resurrection world, we can have a relationship with the Lord through Christ. This reality means that as Christians, as Christ followers, we live in this life and are actually alive to it because we can experience life. After this, many of us will go and eat. And the great thing about that is we will be able to praise the Lord for how the food is put together, that how it makes and how it cooks, because I'm not a chef. You can ask my wife. I burn a lot of things. So I don't really know how it works well, but it works when she does it. So she, we, we cook and then we eat and then our taste buds react in a certain way to make it joyful to us to eat that. And not only that, our system digests it. And not only that, our body says, hey, you need to eat again. You need to drink again to keep us alive. So we get to praise God for those reasons. This also means that after we have a physical death, we will live forever in perfect relationship with the Lord, better known as heaven. And we can be joyous and sing praises that the fact that the king lives, which means we live if we call on his name. The hard part and the flip reality is that this also means there are people who are walking, who are physically alive, but are spiritually dead in this life. And that when they face a physical death, they will have the reality check of realizing that God and them are going to be separated for all eternity. And this is better known as hell, and we live within this reality, knowing that after this life there is heaven and there is hell. This is much like our conversations with high school students. You know, say, hey, don't live for high school, live for life after high school. But in the moment of high school, it seems so important. The social nuances, what is trending, what is cool, and yeah, high school sets you up for college. Do well in high school. You won't pay out as much in college. Trust me. Um, so you, you know, we know these realities as adults because we've gone through high school, yet it's hard for the reality of the students to know this because they don't know life after high school. So it'd be like if someone from eternity stepped down into heaven and said, hey, this is what you need to live for because I've been on the other side. I know what it's like. I'm telling you, this life is not what it's all about. This life like high school will pass like that and you will be in eternity forever. And luckily, we had someone step out of eternity and his name was Jesus Christ and he told us what to live for. And not only that, but he also made a way for us to live for Christ. So that leads us to our first point. We, as followers of Christ, we have to know the reality of the gospel. 
if we do not know the reality of the gospel, we will live for what is temporal. We will live for success in our jobs, a fa- uh, success in our family life, success in whatever you want, but we won't live for what's eternal. If we live for what is internal, the success in our family life is led- leverage for the kingdom of God. Success in our life as our vocation is leverage for the kingdom of God. It makes us live where we see the truth of this life. And Nehemiah, we're going to pick up and see where he's at in verse 4 through 11 in chapter 1. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive, let your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which I have sinned against you, even I, my father's house, have sinned for or sorry, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants, your people, whom I have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him new mercies in the sight of this man. Now I, speaking of Nehemiah, was a cupbearer to the king. So we see Nehemiah's reaction to the reality that his people are destitute, his people are without protection, those whom he loves are in danger. Much like if we know someone who does not know the gospel, the reality of that should weigh on our hearts. And we see Nehemiah's reaction. He mourned, he wept, fasted and prayed. His nation in ruins, his people in danger, and it's affecting him. This past week, I was a small group leader in, at Falls Creek. I had about six guys. Very beginning of the week, we had two followers of Christ, four who were not. I told them, the most important thing I want you guys to understand of this week is your condition before God. And if you can explain that condition to me, that way I know I care about that. And luckily, and praise God, by the end of the week, we had three followers of Christ and three who do not. And we were sharing on our last small group about why they follow Jesus. And then we explained, had the three who did not explain why they don't. Two of them simply said, I just don't believe it's true. I'm here for basketball. I said, I understand that. That's okay. The third one looked at me and he said, if I was to die tonight, I'll go to hell. And it struck me because normally when someone has this realization of the reality of the gospel, they choose to follow Christ. So being perplexed and asking the question, why? I said, well, why, why don't you give your life to the Lord if you know what he's done? He simply looked at me and said, I don't want to give up what my friends and I do. I don't want to get up, give up how I live. I want to live the way I want to live, and I don't want to follow Jesus. 
This reminded me of the rich young ruler who, wouldn't, who knew the truth but wouldn't give up that one thing. And it affected me to know that if this young man was to die tonight, he would spend eternity separated from God knowing the truth of the gospel, which led me to my knees in prayer for him because I knew the reality of his choice. And this brings us to the second point, which is the reality of the gospel will drive us to prayer and fasting. We cannot delay in prayer or fasting for the salvation of others. We cannot delay in gospel conversations because the truth is we do not know where eternity is going to impact our life. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm actually speaking to the believers in the room when I say this. I had a friend, 19 years of age, had a blood clot, and he was walking down the stairs, and by the time he went to the next step, he was dead because the blood clot had traveled in his body and killed him. Luckily, he was a follower of Christ, but this has always stayed with me. The sense of eternity is coming, yet we don't know when that door is going to be open for us. We don't know when that door is going to be open for the friend that we're wanting just to push back that conversation because it's awkward, because socially it could affect us, because it may put our job at risk. But the matter of fact is, if we believe the gospel, we know that a social awkward conversation or position of a job comes in second to the reality that Christ reigns supreme and people live forever without Christ. Or live, yeah. So, um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys are like me where you don't live with this forefront. Don't live with the gospel on our mind, continuing every act, action that we do. So this leaves us to a question of what, as a body of Northwest, what are we going to do about this? We have Mission OKC coming up. What we're going to do before that is we're going to awaken Northwest to prayer and fasting. Right now, we're in the final steps of gathering about 4,000 names. That's a, how many people live in a, in a half-mile radius of the church. We're going to put them into a list of, put them into a list of 15 to 20 names. We're going to put those lists into a packet. We're going to put that packet here with a prayer guide on it and how to fast along with a postcard. And we, the body of believers, not staff, not just the normal segment of volunteers, know the whole body. If you claim Christ, you understand the reality of the gospel, it will drive you to prayer. And I'm calling upon you to join us as we pray and fast over these names that will be given for 30 days. The start Sunday for this is going to be August 25th, around 30 days before Mission OKC. And as we actively partake, partake in the mission of God through prayer, we are going to say, God, we're praying you work. Let us as a body of believers be led by the gospel, be led by prayer to see you work. And then after we have prayed, we're going to see God work and join in the active, actively in the kingdom of God through Mission OKC. Now, what is amazing about this, if, if you look through history, prayer has preceded every movement of God. You look at Pentecost, prayer preceded that. What did Christ do in the garden? He prayed before he went to his captors. If you look at the revivals of old and the awakenings of old, you will see prayer preceded any movement of God. And we're going to ask God to make that movement here 
not to add to our numbers at Northwest, but simply to add to the numbers that will praise his name forever and ever in heaven. And I promise you, if we do this, it will put us in a situation because just like in Nashville, people will reject the fact that we pray for them, but we can celebrate along with those in Nashville, along with our brothers and sisters across the nation and across time, that one, we outlast our persecution as a people of God. You can just ask the Roman Empire how the persecution of Christians went, because we're still here. We can take a trip to Rome to see the ruins of their empire, yet the people of God are here praising his name today. And we're going to see how Nehemiah, he saw the reality of his people, drove him to prayer and fasting. We're going to take the action steps through Awaken Northwest and Mission OKC. And we're going to see what Nehemiah did in Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 8. In the month of Ninsen, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So let's pause here. There's some cultural things we have to understand. He's a cupbearer because he would drink the cup to make sure it's poisoned. So if he drinks it and he dies, the king doesn't drink the cup. On the flip side, the king has to trust whoever that cupbearer is because if he doesn't, he's putting his life on the line. So Nehemiah is living in comfort because the one guy you want to keep happy is the guy who's making sure you're not getting poisoned. Nehemiah also makes this statement, I, am not, I had not been sad in the presence, in the king's presence. Nehemiah understands that the king can have him killed because the king can take it as a personal insult that he is not happy in front of him. He is the king, most powerful man in the, lo- in the land, yet he is unhappy in his presence. Nehemiah understood this, yet the reality weighed on his heart Picking up in verse 2, it said, The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place, my father's graves, lies in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire. So I want you to pause, think about this. Not only does Nehemiah answer this in a way that says, why should I not be sad? He's ultimately saying, why should I be happy knowing the reality that my people are in this land, are destitute, are living in danger? The king says, what is your request in verse 4? So I pray to the God of heaven. And this is such a a beautiful prayer to me because most of the commentaries or all the commentaries I read agree in something. This was very quickly and quietly done because this prayer could not be like Nehemiah's prayer in chapter one. It had to be quiet and quickly done. That should encourage us that when we are in situations where we may want to run and hide, but we know it's a gospel moment, we can take the time to align our heart back with the Lord, knowing that he controls the outcome, knowing he is sovereign. We can also know that we can pray for favor in those moments. Prayer aligns our heart with the Lord's. Have you ever asked why you pray before a meal? My family never did it. And then we started praying before meals, and I thought it was kind of weird, being honest. 
And I didn't understand why, because I don't like doing things just out of a cultural nuance, because culture says we're supposed to do this. Until I, I listened to a sermon by Matt Chandler, and he, he talked about prayer aligns our heart. So as we step into prayer for our food, we realize those things about the food that I talked about earlier. We align our ever-drifting soul and heart and mind that ever wants to go away from them back to the Lord, saying, we give this to you, Lord. Prayer aligns our heart. So picking up in verse 5, it said, I... Uh, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that, I, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and send a letter to Azbab, the keeper of the king's forest, that I may be given timber to make beams for the gates and the for, uh, king's gates for the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. This is amazing because what Nehemiah not only asked for him to travel, Nehemiah asked for supplies. It's kind of a bold statement. But he realizes something, the hand of God was upon him. God wanted him to do this just like God wants you to pray for the lost. God wants you to have those conversations because God understands something we do not. And he understands it clearly. There is life on the outside of this life. When we die, we go into heaven. I don't know if you've ever been there when someone walks into heaven. But the death is not quite as sad. It is a selfish wanting them back, but understanding that they are with the king. So, this prayer that in verse 4 that wasn't a lengthy Prayer affects Nehemiah, affects the king, affects even the queen who's sitting there. If you were to read on later in Nehemiah, you will see how such of a God-sized task this is. People around him made fun of him. People there said this could not be done. Yet Nehemiah rested on the sole fact that this was what God wanted him to do. So as we talk about getting 4,000 names, it sounds like a lot. You may say, Zach, we don't even know who these people are. You're right, you don't. But we know the God who does. We know the God who knows their spiritual condition. We know the God who works more than we do. And praise God, we can look to him forever with these names, weeping and praying that they may know the Lord. And if they know the Lord, may they spread the gospel to their circles. Just as us corporately as a body are going to do something, we ourselves are missionaries to our vocations, whether you're a student, a police officer, or you work from home and you're your stay-at-home mom, or you work anywhere else. You are a missionary. My friend that we commissioned to Portugal last year or last uh, week is no more a missionary to is no more a missionary to Portugal just because she's going on an airplane. We ourselves are missionaries and we have to have that perspective. 
This brings us to our third and final point. The reality of a gospel-centered prayer and fasting will produce gospel-centered perspective. I started listening to Matt Chandler talk about prayer and talk about how he views it and how it aligns his heart. And he talks about how he prays before he goes to meetings. This was back in March, so I started doing it. Before I had a lunch meeting or before I ran a call uh, on work with the police department, I pray. I pray before I get out of my car after a rough day that I may be a Christ-centered husband to my wife, not walking in there saying, well, this is what you've done, this is what I've done, now I deserve to rest. No, because I want to love her as Christ has loved the church. I want to view my wife with gospel-centered perspective. But this is not easy. And if we start doing this, if you start viewing your workplace as a gospel, that politician maybe that you don't like because of their political beliefs is still worthy of your prayers for their salvation. Not that they may vote differently, but that they may praise the king. Your coworker who you do not like, your family member who has wronged you, whoever it is, because we understand without the resurrection, without Christ, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We understand the gospel. We can't elevate ourselves over them to say, no, nah, Lord, not them. Because I guarantee you, you have wronged somebody. Because we are all evil. Look at the Ten Commandments, and you'll fail all of them. And this reality hit me at work a couple months ago. As a, we talked about an intentional communication. I have a police radio. Police radio does not always have intentional communication. I was talking to my wife. I called her the name, my sweet name for her. I didn't know that I was keyed up on the entire city of Oklahoma City. And they all heard me call her. And because she has a police scanner, she, I heard it in the background. And the dispatch says, what are you doing? It was a great moment, and I still get comments from it. But there's a button on our police radio that is an emergency button, and it is not pressed unless it's an intentional communication. That button, when pressed, sends a tone saying, this officer is in a fight for his life, and we know this tone. And I guarantee you, if you're ever with an officer and you hear it, their world will change because it becomes one focus, making sure they go to their brother and sister. I was sitting at Chili's at Southwest 15th, I worked eight days. I was on day eight. I was ready to eat and get, take my days off. We sat down to eat. Hadn't ate all day. It was about 11 o'clock at night. I was ready just to ride the night into my bed, really. And then I hear that tone. My reality shifted, much like if we realize the reality of the gospel. My reality shifted because I knew my brother was in a fight for his life. I could hear it. And then, much like us, because... The reality of the gospel drives us to prayer, which is an action. It drove me to an action. My partners who were sitting around me hopped in our cars and we drove as fast as we could to make sure our brother was okay. And I'll never forget the tone. I'll never forget the lieutenant on the radio saying, hold on, we're coming. Keep fighting, we're coming. We got updates over the radio saying, officer, we can call the officer's fighting and he's losing. And it will drive you to drive like you never will drive before because you know the reality of a physical death is permanent. 
And luckily when I got there, the situation had been resolved. The officer's life was, uh, he was still alive and so was the subject's life. Which praise God for both. Because I looked into the back seat and I realized that the young man sitting in that back seat I had a gospel conversation with, I had seen him at open gym. He had sat in those pews. He had sat with us in uh, worship and we had talked about Jesus and talked about Christ. Much like the young man who at Falls Creek didn't want to give his life to the Lord because of his friends, his reasoning was much the same. In that first moment, after ready to do what I've been trained to do to make sure my friends stay alive, I was hit with the reality of the gospel that if that young man had died that night, he would have spent forever away from Jesus. So, the reality of that struck me because I can no longer speak as an officer. I can no longer look at him as an eyes of an officer. I had to, and the Lord forced me to, pray for that young man's salvation because truth is, we don't see reality. We see the effects of a spiritual reality. And it comes out in sinful nature and it comes out in salvations and people having fruit of the Spirit. And this reality was hard for me to grasp. And the Lord works amazingly. And I pray for that young man's salvation. I pray for that officer's salvation. Because the truth of the matter is, societal eyes will look at them and say one is greater than the other. The truth of the matter is, both are lost souls who will spend forever away from Jesus. Both need our prayers. So as we move to an invitation, I want to close with this. If you have never understood the reality of Jesus in your own life, I would ask you to come up here and talk with us. I'll be up here, talk with the person that may have brought you. On the flip side, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would ask you this, to pray either at your seat or at the altar for that person or persons you know who do not know Christ. And I would ask that you would make that a daily habit because we understand the reality of the gospel as Christ followers. And it begs us to pray for the souls because I know in my life the Lord used people. One of my best friends, his grandmother prayed for me for two years before I knew Jesus. People are worth praying for. Mm-hmm.